You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. This episode is part of our reflection series, where we zoom out a bit and consider our medical journeys through the lens of those who have a little bit more hindsight. My name is Mike. And my name is Aiden. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Sharon Salome. Dr. Salome is a family physician and former Associate Dean of Student Affairs for the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. She came to medicine after a degree in English literature and nearly a decade in speech pathology, as well as earning a Master's of Special Education from the University of Toronto. She has worked with Indigenous populations in Ontario and was the Director of the Sexual Assault Centre for the York Region in Ontario. Dr. Salome currently holds positions as the Chair of the Policy and Procedures Committee, a Year 3 and 4 academic advisor providing one-on-one support for med students, and serves on the BC Government Patient Quality Review Board. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Salome. I'm delighted to be here. So, Dr. Salome, um, your path through medicine was not the traditional sort of science degree, go straight into medical school like me and so many of my colleagues. Could you just walk us through your journey through education and through medicine? Sure. I uh, I grew up in a small town in northern Manitoba, and the, the chances of somebody from my town going to medical school in those years was slim and none. So, it wasn't even uh, on the table, really. Uh, we uh, we moved from um, small town Manitoba to Quebec, and I went to McGill thinking that I wanted to do English literature. That was my my area of interest and probably the thing that I did quite well, so that seemed like a good thing to do, only I don't know what you, there wasn't really something for me to do with English literature at that point, so I started working for a book publisher, and I was a secretary as a for the book publisher, which I wasn't very happy doing. So I went to look for an apartment in Toronto and the woman who was renting the room was a speech pathologist and I'd never heard of that person. So I was interested and she said, well, I should apply. And I applied and they said, well, for next year, sure, give it, give it, give us a call, send in an application. And two days before classes started that summer, they called and said, do you want to be a speech pathologist? And I really didn't want to be a secretary. So I decided I would be a speech pathologist. So that's how I ended up doing that. Um, And then practiced that for 10 years, as you said, at the school board, uh, working with uh, children with language handicaps mostly and running the department. And then I was starting to feel like I needed something new and something different. So I started a PhD in in education, but applied for medicine as well. Didn't get in the first time, um, got in the second time, and uh, and it was the best thing I ever did to reapply for medicine. And so I think for your listeners, don't give up if you don't get in the first time. Uh, try again. Uh, have a look at your letters again. Think about what you want to say again. Um, and it's... Uh, it's not necessary. You, you don't necessarily get what you want the first go round. 
the other thing I just wanted to mention to you is that when I started medicine, I was 32. So that was certainly older than most of my colleagues. We had a, a group of us who were older. One was a, a social worker. One was a, a PhD psychologist. One was a nurse. And we called ourselves the Carbon Club because that's how you could tell how old we were. And we worked together for that whole that whole time at McMaster. And none of us had actually ever done a multiple choice exam when we started medicine. So we, we were told that we would fare poorly if we didn't learn how to do multiple choice exams. So that's what we did. We learned how to do them together Friday nights. So you will find that uh, you, you will find your own path when you get into medicine and you'll find your own colleagues and you'll find the people that you can work with well. And that's uh, a pretty important part of the whole process, actually. Could you tell us about the specialty you chose, why you chose it, and if your time as a speech pathologist influenced your decision at all? Sure. Uh, I, I felt when I graduated, when I was about to graduate, I felt quite old, actually. And I felt like I had to get on with it. Um, I felt like I, I didn't have time to do a long residency, and I felt like I should uh, do the two-year family medicine and get the show on the road, um, which is something also I want to say to your listeners. Pursue what you want. Pursue what feels best to you. Fortunately, family medicine was a really good match for me because I, I was used to dealing with children. I was used to dealing with adults with speech problems. Um, I'd done lots of teaching, lots of, lots of teaching at York University and also in, um, uh, at U of T. So I, I was used to working with children and adults, and that fitted me well. But it might not have fit me well, and I might have made a mistake by choosing something because it was shorter. So I think what you need to do, if you're older or whoever you are, pursue the, pursue the things that interest you. Don't feel limited by time. Uh, I think it's important to not I mean, think about it. If you, if you practice for 32 years or 36 years, is that going to make a big difference? I don't think so. So take the long view and uh, realize that you have the time to do what you want. Thank you for sharing that. Could you next tell us about the work you did with Indigenous populations in Ontario? And do you have any lessons that you could pass on to the next generations of physicians on how to be an ambassador for these underserved populations in Canada? Sure. In your introduction, you said I had extensive experience. Well, I wouldn't call it extensive. I'd call it important and life-altering, but I wouldn't say that I was there uh, for a long time. I I graduated from U of T from family practice and then went north to a place called Sioux Lookout, which is in northwestern Ontario. And our, our center was Sioux Lookout. It's north of Thunder Bay, if any of your, if your listeners know where that is. It's, it's quite far north. And we flew out into the field two weeks a month and lived on reserve and in the nursing station. And um, uh, I think things have changed. I hope they've changed a bit for how we are trained. I think you and your colleagues have much more cultural competence than, than we did. I think, I don't even think cultural competence was something that we talked about. I think think we weren't very well trained we weren't very uh we weren't very knowledgeable about 
um, First Nations, First Nations beliefs, First Nations spirituality, First Nations medicine, and I think we we could have done better. And I regret that. I regret that we didn't know more. We certainly tried our best to provide good care, and I think we did provide good care. But I, I kind of like to do it now. <laughs> I'd like to go back. I'd like to do a better job. I'd like to go back with what we know now and, and to have a much more of a meaningful dialogue with the people that I was serving. I think that that would have been, that, that, that's something I've, I feel, I feel I missed and I would like to know more and do more. What would you tell your younger self if you could go back? Uh, listen more. I think I'd tell my younger self to listen more in medicine, um, to be more aware, but in the North, I think I would have made many more contacts with First Nations leaders in the communities. I would have spent more time learning what was important, but not even so much what was important, what their point of view was, uh, how they were seeing the health within the community, how they were seeing us, and were we doing what they needed us to do, what they wanted us to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think we have a much a much better understanding now of of how to even just even behave um we we went in thinking we knew what would what should happen and i think we didn't know what should happen i think we weren't uh as responsive and as thoughtful as we might have been again we did provide good care and we worked very hard but i think we would have had more of a of a relationship. We could have had more of a relationship. One, one thing that was interesting was having the opportunity to provide, to work with uh, otolaryngology from U of T and the residents and the otolaryngologists came up to Sioux Lookout Zone maybe three times a year to, um, to look after children with hearing loss and to do surgery and to follow children uh, who had had uh, many, many ear infections. So I was able to coordinate those visits for, I guess, about 10 years, uh, which was very rewarding. And I felt was something that was was a was a good contribution to to the communities. So beyond your rural and urban clinical work, much of your career has been spent in leadership positions. Could you start off by telling us about your work as the director of the Sexual Assault Center in the York region and the impact that had on your career? That was one of the things that happened. Uh, there was no sexual assault center before. And then the woman who ran, the, who was the chief of emergency in the small hospital that I worked in um, was the first leader along with a nurse practitioner. And they both stepped back from the roles and you needed somebody to fill the role. It was obvious to all of us that this was something that was very important, um, that we wanted to provide the care. And I think you and your colleagues will find that sometimes there's just a, a space that needs to be filled. And because you believe in it, you'll step into that space. So that's, I think, how we get to be leaders is filling spaces that need to be filled. Um, so that was a, it was a, a very interesting role. We, we got training from, uh, Women's College Hospital, and we had a an on-call rota with a nurse and a doctor on call. 
and the the people who were the doctors were mostly the women physicians from the community and we all had a, a call rota and we worked with the nurses and we were called sort of day or night to meet with people who had been assaulted usually women and we did the sexual assault kit and we did the swabs and all that stuff and went to court and um, uh, tried to support the people who had undergone that experience and it was it was very new for that region Toronto was well supplied at that point but the place that I was working was a little town just north of Toronto um, so we've shifted gears now I'm not in I'm not in the Sioux Lookout zone anymore I'm back toward living near Toronto how important do you feel it is that physicians take on leadership roles for their professional development should these kind of experiences be something all doctors seek out in order to become well-rounded physicians? Everybody has a different path and everybody has different responsibilities. And I think we can only do what we can do. At that point, I wasn't married. I didn't have children. I was very intent on my practice and it was a way that I could contribute. But I think what you're going to find is that at various times of your life, you have various amounts of energy and you can only spread yourself so thin you have so you have to choose what's important to you and what you can not even what's important to you but what you can do you know if you are a, a young physician and you have a family then maybe this is not the time for you to be taking leadership roles as a mom or as a dad maybe you need to be at soccer practice instead of on call for a sexual assault center and I think, you know, our careers are not are not short, they're long. And there there's there's different times for different for different activities. So maybe when you people are in your middle thirties and you're starting in your careers, maybe that won't be the time for you to be a leader. Maybe that'll be a time for you to be a dad. If if you're a dad. Um and uh and to have time with your partner and your home and your just being together as a family, that may be what you choose to do. And that's, I think that's good. I think that's great. Um, I didn't have that. Uh, but later on in my career, when I was had the call of family, then I had to step back from my career and, and um, be with my family. So it's, it's, it's not, it's not one, there's not one path here. So maybe being a leader isn't necessarily important for everybody's professional career. Did you ever find, though, that there was any theme among what aspects of your career that you particularly enjoyed? Being with patients, being with students, being with people. Um, I'm not somebody who would have been a very good fit for a non-clinical specialty. I really like my patients. I liked my patients a lot. I spent lots of time with them. I'm still in touch with my patients from... Toronto, actually, and it's over 20 years now since I left. Uh, so I still keep in touch with some of them who are very special to me. And uh, so I, I, I guess it's the it's the people stuff for me. So it seems to me that there's a lot of opportunities to take leadership roles. But I'm wondering, are doctors with innate leadership skills drawn to those positions? Or is it possible to develop skills throughout the course of a career? Well, now there are lots of opportunity for leadership courses. There's there's information out there. There's there's um, I can't name you any leadership courses, but I know that well actually there is one. 
I can't, I'm sorry. Um, I can tell you another time, <laughs> but there are leadership courses and they are very useful and very valuable. And lots of people, lots of young people now are, are doing those courses. They weren't necessarily available to us when we were starting out practice, but they are available now. And if, if it's something that you're interested in, I mean, many people are doing, are doing masters of education in, in medicine. And that's a, a very interesting and fascinating field. And people are doing them part-time um, and learning, learning about leadership and learning how to, um, what, what kinds of what kinds of activities they're most interested in? Are they interested in leadership in academia? Are they interested in in uh, some of the some of the uh, committees that are from Daughters of BC? That kinds of things from the CMPA, uh, from your own uh, from your own specialties. Um, there's there's leadership positions that you can be involved in, and and they will they will give you uh, there's courses there's stuff to do to learn. Another leadership accolade of yours was your position as the Associate Dean of Student Affairs at UBC. Can you tell us about what your position entailed? Um, I started uh, as the Assistant Dean for a year. I was working with a, a eMERGE doc named Bruce Fleming, who is a, a good friend, longstanding friend. And he was the second Associate Dean of Student Affairs here at UBC. Um, Andrew Seal was the first person who had that role and then Bruce and then me and then now Jeanette McMillan is the associate dean of student affairs it's it's a really it's a really interesting role because it allows you to work very closely with students um, with students who are having challenges with students who are having difficulties and I'm particularly drawn to those folks because I didn't find medical school easy at all I found going back to medical school really tough um, and as you mentioned earlier, Mike, I, I didn't have a strong science background, so it was, you know, we're really f flying by the seat of my pants for much of the time. And, and I found it hard, really hard. And it wasn't just that I didn't know how to do multiple choice exams. I didn't know how to do a lot of stuff. So I'm really interested. I, I, I think that most students who get into medical school should be there. And sometimes they just need a little help along the way. And I didn't actually think I got a lot of help along the way. And I wanted to provide that help for people. I also know that there's, when we're looking at diversity within the medical school, we're looking at people who, who might have some challenges, but who will make great doctors. And um, maybe there's some accommodations that are needed. Maybe they need some more support. Those are all possible things that can be done through student affairs. And then there's, awful things that happen to students when they're in medical school to the to them and to their families and i found it almost like practicing family medicine to be able to support students through the challenges that they had with their own illnesses with their family's illnesses with all kinds of stuff happen within these classes and and i think it's great that their student affairs is there to kind of support and be a confidential guide and help so that was i think why i was very interested in it so i'm guessing you've seen a lot of medical students struggling over the years and i'm wondering that with all of your experience do you have any sort of unifying message or piece of advice for medical students ask for help don't be on your own don't do this by yourself if you're stuck if you've got a problem if you need some support get the support 
I don't know, there was something about us, maybe how we're, the, the one thing we have in common is we're deeply independent and we don't want to seem weak. We don't want to seem like we can't do something or that we, we need, um, that we need help. We do need help and you don't need help for long maybe, or maybe you do, but get some help, get some support. Um, uh, there's physician wellness resources. There's there's student affairs. There's all kinds of people. Just your colleagues. Talk to people. Get get help if you need help. Don't be alone. And you'll get over that hump. And then you'll then you'll go on and you'll and you'll be fine. But sometimes you just need that that support and that care. So if I, there's one message that I learned out of student affairs is don't be alone. Don't be a stranger. So one important topic that's especially pertinent for our female colleagues is about starting a family. In your experience or that of your colleagues, could you tell us a bit about what it was like managing expectations around family and home life, those from yourself and, and maybe also your peers? Sure. Um, people want to have families and people should have families. I think, I think again, you know, when I talked about, when you talked about leadership, there's a t- there's a time for everything and when people are in their 20s and early 30s maybe late 30s there may family may be an important focus for them and I think that that's a very reasonable thing to be to want to be able to do the fact is you can't do everything all at the same time so give yourself a break have your family take some time with your kids and um, and come back or if you're happy with your mom or you, or your grandma looking after your kids, that's great. If you're happy buying help, that's great. But don't try and do everything yourself because you'll 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 explode and you'll be exhausted and you won't be you'll be driving to work and you'll be feeling guilty about your kid and you'll be driving home and you'll be feeling guilty about your work. Probably the most important thing now. I realize I'm talking to two men here, but. Probably the most important thing that you can do is choose a partner who really wants to have a family and is prepared to be involved and is prepared to not just um, turn up at the end of the day. You know, I mean, this things have changed and, and many young men are very, very active in the care of their families and support of their partners. So choose somebody who wants to have a family and uh, make a plan and find out how you're going to do this together. Because if you don't, you'll be trying to do everything and you won't do anything well and you won't feel good about it. And you'll be terribly stressed. Hmm. So what I hear you saying is that there is capacity to prioritize the family and do well at medicine, but maybe it just takes a readjustment of expectations on you know timeline perhaps. Well, I think, you know, when I started medicine, a lot of the, women in medicine the women a lot of women married doctors and so often the women were the were the homemakers and the doctors went to work and earned the money and then gradually more and more women are in medicine and so women are having good careers interesting careers important careers um they're also wanting to have families they're wanting to they're wanting to do it all be it all and I think we have to recognize that we have to share this responsibility with others and we have to um, 
try not to be everything to everyone. And if you have a, you know, if you're, if it's your decision to have a child during medical school, I think you have to say it may take me longer to finish medical school, but that's okay. That's, that's my choice. My choice is to have my family when I'm younger or if, during residency. Residencies are very good about giving t people time away if that's what they need to do and that's what they want to do. You know, I think if you, if you want to, if you want to have a family, then for goodness sakes, please have a family, but know that you may take a little bit longer to finish your training or you may be in practice a little bit less time and you'll, you'll still be great, but you'll be a happier person, I think. Another tricky topic we don't get a lot of exposure to during medical school is about learning how to manage our finances. Do you have any pearls about how you learn to manage your money over the course of your career? Any tips or warnings to be aware of? Um, get a financial advisor and go talk to that person. And you can do that now. Um, get used to talking to people about money. Money is an, is an important thing and you're going to be working hard and you're going to be earning some money. So unless it really interests you to manage your own money, get get a financial advisor and set your goals and take some time to figure out where you want to go and what you want to do with your money and and have a a, a plan i think is is a, is a very good start um the other thing that we're not taught very much about is business and the business of a practice and i don't think there's much room for that in undergraduate school but i do think there's lots of room for that in in graduate work um, and Doctors of BC has good support around that, and I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. We're not very good money managers um, because we think we're too busy. We are very, very busy, but I think if you learn to manage your money and you spend a little bit of time up front, you'll be, um, you won't make mistakes. You won't decide that there's some amazing fund that's giving 20% return, and I think I'll have some of that, please. Um, because it sounds like 20% is a lot more than 4%, which you're absolutely right. Um, but you will lose your money and you will buy uh, an apartment building on shifting sands in Florida. Um, and you'll be have been too busy to read the prospectus and you will lose your money. So <laughs> take some time to learn about money, to get good advice, follow the advice. And um, and figure out how practices work. Again, you know, a little time up front will save you a lot of time and grief down the road. So to your point about choosing a financial advisor, obviously there's so much vested interest in what we do with our money. How do you know who to trust? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Talk to your parents. Um, talk to your older siblings. Talk to family friends. Who do they like? Who do they know? Um, uh, who have they lost money through? Who have they made money through? Um, I, I think, again, you know, I think it's a mistake to, to, uh, to not do a little bit of investigating. Shouldn't take you a lot of time, but people are going to have, have thoughts and ideas. Again, I'm, it sounds like I'm, I'm uh, pushing doctors in BC and I know they're very important and they've been very helpful, but they do have reasonable financial advice, um, but they're not the only folks in town. Um, 
And I think it, it's, it's, you know, we, 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 I go back to this whole thing about us being independent and us thinking that we should know how to do everything, but we don't know how to do everything. We don't know about money. So let's get some help. Just like you wouldn't decide that you're going to go into emerge as a, an emerge doc and put burr holes in somebody's head. You know, you're going to find somebody who knows how to do that. And um, so use the expertise around you. You're not alone. <laughs> so on that note, if you could inject maybe one topic into medical curriculum about finances, what would it be? Well, hmm, that's a really good question. Um, probably as a medical student, it would be being aware of what you're spending. Now, I know Jen Fong is the, or up until like tomorrow, I think, is the financial advisor through student affairs. And she's done wonderful, wonderful things. But, you know, she talks about um, people spending money when they're medical students that they don't have and spending lots of money on stuff that you don't even know you spent it on, like expensive coffees every day. Like, you know, is that is that something that you want to be paying off two years after you finish medical school. I don't know, but I think we need to think about what we're spending our money on. So she did good sessions on that and I hope they'll continue doing that. Um, but I think um, I think being aware of what you're spending is really important. Uh, the only thing I would strongly suggest that you do, and I know I sound like a broken record, like a student affairs broken record, but get disability insurance, get it early. Um, and uh, be, caught, be, be, be cognizant of what you're spending. So you're saying we shouldn't invest our entire line of credit into Bitcoin? No, only about half your entire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Please do not do that. Do not do that. So I shouldn't have bought that Tesla? Well, there you go. Now you're a, a green guy. That's good. Before we wrap up, we generally like to ask our guests if they have any parting wisdom or thoughts for the next generation of trainees that they'd like to share. Uh, the one thing I'd like to say is a lot of people feel they, when they come into medicine that they know what they want to be when they finish. They feel they should know what they want to do when they finish medicine, and I don't think that's necessarily so. Lots of times when people come in and they think they know what they want to do. They change their minds partway through. Um, and I think what I would suggest to people who come in is to keep your heart and your mind open and learn as much as you can about everything. Um, and, and then decide how you want to proceed. There's more than one place for everyone in medicine. You know, I could have been a psychiatrist and been very, very happy. I could have been a pediatrician and been very happy. I could have been internal medicine and been very happy. So there isn't one thing for every for for, for you. There are there are many possible career routes, and I think it's a mistake to to limit yourself to narrow your your view. Um, you'll learn a lot. You'll you'll see things you didn't even know existed. And once you see those things and learn about those things, then you can make up your mind. So don't be in a rush. Oh, can I say, say one more thing? Can I say one more thing? Of course. Thank you. Um, 
you know, when we're in medical school, we are attached, many of us, for much of our training to the large hospitals, large teaching hospitals. Um, that isn't really the real world. You know, the real world is in smaller um, hospitals, healthcare centers, not necessarily in downtown Vancouver. Um, there are very, very rewarding careers to be had in smaller community hospitals, and you'll get to do a lot more, and you'll have closer colleagues, and you'll be more collegial, and you'll have probably a closer connection to your patients. So keep that in mind that um, Vancouver, VGH, St. Paul's, they're great hospitals, they're wonderful hospitals, but there are other wonderful places where people aren't maybe as acutely ill, where there's more of a community feel, where there's maybe easier and better follow-up. Um, and uh, there's uh, family physicians ready to um, provide the follow-up care to those patients. Dr. Sloan, it's been a real treat. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sloan. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And of course, thank you to you, our listener, for listening to the Metamorphosis podcast. You can find more episodes on Spotify, Simplecast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 